the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy with Dr. M.R. Extenteth and featuring Josh Addison as the interlocutor. Hello, you're listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. I'm Josh Addison, sitting here in sunny-ish Auckland, while meanwhile young Matthew is of course over feasting on the blood of the innocent in Bucharest. Um... Not quite sure how many more vampire Romania jokes I can do before it just becomes plain old cultural stereotyping, but I'm going to stick with it for now. I'm, I'm feeling good about it still. We'll see. We'll see. Um, so once again, uh, the episode will be curiously bifurcated. Um, I'm recording part of it here. Matthew's going to record part of it over there and then jam them together and hopefully it'll it'll sound okay. Um, so we're going to start with a news update. I'm doing that one. Although perhaps, perhaps, before I start that, Matthew, would you like to give us an update on what you've been up to in Romania at the moment? Buna, Joshua. Buna. And Buna to our loyal listeners who are putting up with our now strangely bifurcated podcast, as Josh is wont to call it. I'm doing well. I'm doing lots of excellent work at the Institute for Research in the Humanities at the University of Bucharest. In fact, such excellent research, I've been invited to present a keynote at SciCons in Padua at the end of November this year, which is a big conference on science and conspiracy and a really conspiratorial conference. The first day is public, and I'll be giving a public presentation, which all can attend if you can get to Padua at the end of November of this year. And then the next two days, the researchers will be cloistered and we'll be doing our work in secret. So yes, we're going to have an open conspiracy on the first day and a traditional closed conspiracy for two days afterwards. And not just that, next week I'm off to Venice to attend a conference there, but I'm not presenting a paper. I'm simply going on what we might call a junket to go visit one of my favourite cities on Earth. So I would say at this stage, being in the Northern Hemisphere for a year is really, really working out for me. But enough about my news. Let's hear the news. Breaking, breaking, conspiracy theories in the news. So, to the news. Uh, Well, it's October. Uh, which means there's less than a month until the US presidential election, and it means it is now time for the October surprise. Uh, every politician's worst nightmare, there's some some sort of scandal coming out just before the November election, which will derail uh, a wannabe president's campaign. So Trump has already had one, perhaps in the form of the, the leaked tax records, um, which happened, what, a week ago or so. Um Vaguely conspiratorial there, especially since they do appear to have been leaked from, you know, inside Trump's organisation. But who knows? Knowing knowing Trump, there could be even more than that. Um, but uh, in terms of an October surprise for Clinton, there hasn't been one yet, although according to WikiLeaks, there was going to be one. Um, various people had been saying that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks had, had dirt on Hillary Clinton that was going to sink her campaign completely. Um, and he was going to hold a press conference about it and then he wasn't and then they did but th- then there was a conference that just sort of involved them talking about themselves a bit and plugging their books and really said bugger all to do with Hillary Clinton so the the WikiLeaks uh, October surprise has not been forthcoming no less than our friend Alex Jones has been been quite upset about that and has been been saying that you know perhaps Julian Assange he's, he's just run out of documents he's got nothing left and now he's just um, just just self-aggrandizing um, but but one thing that has come up 
over the last week was in, in the lead up to the presidential debate of last week, the week before, whenever it was. Um, so even before the the debate the debate um, had happened, people were saying that oh you know obviously Clinton's going to cheat somehow because that's what she'll do. She'll probably be wearing an earpiece or something so that her opponent so not her opponents so that her support team can be feeding her lines and so on during the debate. Um, and then that that didn't appear to have happened, and yet um, many people have pointed out that you could see there was some sort of rectangular object underneath uh, her jacket that appeared to be attached to the belt uh, of her pants. Um, that's trousers for our British listeners. Um, and, and suggesting maybe this was some sort of a receiver for her microphone, claiming that there was you could possibly see some little earbud sticking out of her ear. Um, although, again, people have sort of said, well, if she really did have a tiny thing hidden in her ear, she wouldn't. She could have very easily worn her hair over her ears like she does a lot of the time, which would have hidden it completely. Why would she have had her ear, hair out if she was going to do that? But nevertheless, um, the folks at Prison Planet, part of the InfoWars uh, group, Umbrella, whatever the hell they call themselves, um, have put up an article saying here was this 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 mysterious thing, uh, was it a micro was it a, a microphone earphone receiver, something was it was it uh, something medical was it some sort of a people thought it looked like the possibly the size and shape of some device that sort of delivers electric shocks to your brain to offset seizures or something like that I don't even know. Um, but even even the present planet people didn't actually seem overly convinced by that. Um, interesting, though, you may recall it was 12 years ago now, the 2004 debate between uh, George W. Bush and Kerry. Um, at that at the time, people pointed out that Bush appeared to have some, some sort of a strange lump uh, sort of op- showing under his jacket on his back, kind of in between his shoulder blades. And and people sort of pointed to that. And also a couple of cases where Bush appeared to sort of pause for an, an unusually long amount of time before replying as though he were being fed lines. And one point where he um, said, don't cut me off, despite the fact that no one had tried to cut him off as, as, as evidence that all he was being fed lines and, and this device on his back was obviously, you know, some sort of receiver. But again, I, th- th- those rumours also never really came to anything and I don't think anything um, came of it. The, or, or actually, the other thing interesting, though, again, because um, people suggested for Clinton it may have been some sort of medical device, again, playing on her, her supposed, you know, physical decrepitude, um, and her recent bout of pneumonia. Uh, again, with Bush, they thought it was like some sort of some sort of portable defibrillating pacemakery thing because he had had I don't know, he had that choking business at one point. I can't remember what else, but supposedly there were questions raised about his health. So um, interesting to see that sort of come up again uh, for the other side. Oh, because the other thing was a bulletproof vest was one idea uh, that he was wearing some sort of a thin bulletproof vest because he feared assassination or something and, and hadn't divulged that and was sort of denying it because he didn't want to look fearful and weak or something. But interesting theories, but don't actually appear to have uh, anything behind them. Now, um, staying in America, uh, the Senate has voted, and I think I think we mentioned this earlier, the possibility that was going to happen. The Senate has voted to allow families to sue Saudi Arabia 
over the 9-11 attacks. Um, now, there was this bill, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, or JASTA, because all the good acronyms were taken. Um, President Obama vetoed this bill, and the Senate has voted to overturn his veto. Um, now, initially, this seemed like a very sort of sort of laudable goal of um, Saudi Arabia, which has you know appeared to have a large in some way been behind the attacks and has never been held to account and wanting uh, victim, you know, families of these victims um, to be able to sue them and, and hold them to account some way. Um, but the downside of it, and, and this was the stated reason for Obama's veto of it, um, was that generally people aren't allowed to sue other countries' governments, and that kind of goes in both directions. We, we don't allow our citizens to sue your government, and you won't allow your citizens to sue our government. And so the, the worry about um, the reason why this act was vetoed, rather, um, was that people worried, you know, so if, if we allow uh, American citizens to start suing foreign countries and and you know, to, to be clear, um, this isn't the mem uh, vic families of victims of 9-11 being allowed to sue Saudi Arabia bill. This is the bill would, would allow any country, um, would allow a lawsuit against any country by any US citizen who claims the country financed or otherwise aided and abetted a terrorist attack on US soil. Uh, and then it goes on to say liability would only attach if the plaintiff could show the country acted with knowledge in providing the support. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's, it, it opens the doors for any American citizen to sue any foreign government if they believe the government had in some way supported terrorism. And they're worried that this might you know, open the floodgates for, for um, other countries to say, oh, really? Well, you're, you're going to let your citizens sue us? Well, maybe we'll let our citizens sue you. Um, apparently, having been confronted with this uh, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, the, what is he, the Senate House leader thing, whatever he is, has sort of said, oh, well, you probably should have mentioned that to us first, which probably he, you would have got from the fact that he vetoed it. I don't know. It all seems to be a little wonky. Um, an interesting thing, though, about the article um, that I was reading this in, uh, at one point it includes the line, the 9-11 Commission found no evidence that the Saudi government as an institution or senior Saudi officials were involved. Now, that's word for word from those missing 28 pages of the 9-11 Commission report that we talked about earlier in the year. Um, and as we noted at the time, it was very specifically worded. Um, no evidence the Saudi government as an institution or senior Saudi officials were involved, which does leave the door open for junior officials to have been involved or for elements of the government to have been involved, but not um, in the capacity as government members. But, you know, not, uh, not, not, it wasn't an official government action, but you, uh, there could still have been government members involved and that statement could still remain true. Uh, so, more on that as it happens, or not. We'll see. Now, where to go now? Let's go into space. Uh, or not, as, as it turned out. Um, the uh, SpaceX program had a, a launch failure the other week. Uh, one of their rockets exploded, basically, as rockets do from time to time, being still very hi uh, highly experimental things. Um, but there was there was slight sort of conspiratorial mutterings 
about supposedly the, uh, footage of the explosion appeared to show possibly something coming from another rooftop towards the rocket as though something had been fired at it or there'd been some element of sabotage. And the rooftop that it appeared to come from was a building owned by the United Launch Alliance, who are another basically private space travel, space space rocket launching company. Um, and so things you know, became a little bit uncomfortable. Supposedly the SpaceX people essentially said, hey guys, um, not accusing you of anything, but can we come and look at your rooftop, please? Uh, and they unsurprisingly said, bugger off. So nothing has been proven there, but it all looks just a little bit strange and fishy. Um, continuing on the theme, so last week we had a little a little article about uh, that mentioned how a, a um, science fiction writer was involved in, with some of the very earliest UFO sightings in America. Um, Matthew has sent another article my way about um, the history of, of human deception during the earliest days of UFO sightings. Now, I'm going to be honest, Matthew, I tried reading the article several times and, and my eyes just kept glazing over. The, the, the word deception shows up so often that if we were having a drinking game uh, and, and I drank alcohol in the first place, um, I would have done some fairly serious damage to myself. Essentially what it seems to be saying, though, um, you had a group involved in World War II who were all about deception, um, and then one of the head guys in this group ended up being involved in the earliest sort of cases of reports of flying saucers and Area 51 and all that nonsense. Oh, I shouldn't say nonsense, but but I did, so whatever. Um, and yes, the fine details of it, I, my, my, my brain somewhat reco recoiled from, to be perfectly honest. Um, but basically, maybe, maybe this is something we should go into in greater detail in a subsequent episode so Matthew can actually explain it all to me, because I, can, I could certainly get the impression that there were murky dealings, murky goings-on in the earliest days of UFO sightings, but the specific details of them somewhat elude me, shall we say. Now, one more. We've we've been to America. We've been to outer space. Let's let's come back home to New Zealand, um, and look at the the launch of the Hobson's Pledge campaign. Um, this is a campaign recently launched in New Zealand by a former prime. No, he was never prime minister. He was just leader of the National Party when they weren't in power. Former National Party leader Don Brash, um, who has a has a history of as he would put it, anti-separatist uh, rhetoric. Um, others would say it's more like blatant racism, but um, there's some controversy there. But yes, yeah, so the, the Hobson's Pledge refers to, it's, uh, is reference to a copy of the Treaty of Waitangi that was um, found or in the possession of some dude called Hobson. Um, in this case, I'm also not entirely clear on the details, not because I've tried and failed, but because I just simply don't care enough to look. It's, it, it, it strikes to me strikes me as being more of the same old crap. Um, they're, they're all about how we don't want separate Maori seats, separate Maori representation, no, no separatism at all, there should be one law for all, um, but making no attempt to address or even acknowledge any sort of systemic problems that may result in, in um, disadvantages towards the Maori people even existing um, at all. 
Uh, one of the backers of this campaign, Mike Butler, is sympathetic to the Celtic New Zealand thesis, which you will have recalled us talking about in earlier episodes. Um, they, they don't really seem to have any interest in social issues at all. It's just about sort of property and legal rights. Everyone should have the exact same rights and there should be no separate rights for, for Maori and other citizens and so on and so forth, um, ignoring any sort of relationship that might or might not exist between sort of legal and social uh, legal and 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 property rights and laws um, and current social situations um, apparently uh, local reporter meeting Irangi Forbes asked several of the campaigners how Pakiha they were um, Mr. Butler claimed that this question was completely irrelevant, but then, as often happens when you get these things started talking about um, about Maori not being pure pure Maori, and you, you hear this a bit. There's no you know, there, there are no pure Maori left anyway. The only people who claim to be Maori just sort of have part Maori blood, and, and how far do you take that? Everyone could claim to be Maori, and then we'd have to blah 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 blah, and um, and it, it all kind of sounds like bollocks, really, um, which makes it a a sad thing to go out on. Matthew, Matthew, I'm, I'm directing this, these comments at you specifically now. Do you have any further comments on the Hobson's Pledge thing? I imagine you probably have some, some feelings about it. Um, let me know what those are. And then if you, if you feel like it, um, would you mind checking in on that Andy Bashago fellow again? Haven't heard from him in a while. So first things first, Joshua, you ahistorical bastard. It's not that we're not talking about the treaty version found that belonged to William Hobson. Uh, that's known as the Littlewood Treaty, which was drafted by one of Hobson's secretaries. We're talking about William Hobson, the first governor of New Zealand. So the reason why Don Brash and Co are talking about Hobson's pledge is they're talking about the "We Are the One People" epitaph that Hobson gave when the treaty was signed. And that's why it's called Hobson's Pledge. It wasn't because it belonged to some random guy called Hobson, the first governor of New Zealand. Know your own history, boy. Know your own history. Secondly, it's really hard to get around the claim of conspiracy inherent in the Hobson's Pledge campaign because the campaigners have to claim that Maori gets special privilege in New Zealand slash Aotearoa, despite the fact that according to all the social stats, they really don't. And secondly, they've got to also make the claim that the reason why their position, the Hobson's Pledge position, is not orthodoxy is really due to some kind of social engineering going on at the academic and political level, which does suggest a conspiracy by political and academic elites to hide the truth, and I'm putting truth in quote marks, but I'm realising you can't see that because this is a podcast, of the real natural situation in Aotearoa slash New Zealand politics or economics or societal structure, etc, etc. So despite what the Hobson's Pledge people say, which is we're only interested in talk about property rights, where we think there's clear inequality in the system, they have to buy into a conspiracy that the reason why they claim it's just about property rights is constantly being besmirched in the press and by the government of the day is due to a conspiracy to hide the fact that actually property rights are the only thing we should be interested in and those social stats are in some way either irrelevant, untrue, or just not salient to a political debate in modern society within Kiwi culture at this particular point in time. So it's important to note the Hobson's Pledge campaign and to stress the racist undertone and the conspiratorial claims within it to point out that this is really the last gasp 
of a certain set of, and I'm going to say, boomer white males within New Zealand culture trying to cement their property rights at a point in time where we're re-evaluating what happened during the colonisation process and the consequences of breaking the treaty so quickly after it was signed, which does ask, or at least raise the question, maybe some of the land that we took from Māori, we took illegally. Actually, that's not even in dispute. It's known that large amounts of land were seized, and that maybe the best way to have restorative justice between the two peoples mentioned in the treaty document, Pākehā and Māori, and the best way to improve the lot of Māori who have been robbed of their land and their natural sources of income is maybe reassessing some of that property and going, maybe Māori should have that back, or at least have equal access to it in the same way the Crown does at this particular point in time. But apparently... Asking those questions about modern New Zealand slash Aotearoa society and asking questions about how can we repair the damage between the two parties to the treaty is somehow separatism as opposed to, you know, restorative justice. So there you go. That's why it's important. But you know what else is important? Finding out the terms and conditions of our next US president Andy Peshago. This week on Andy Bashiago, we point the spotlight at the policy of urging American billionaires to take American solar. Let me give you Andy's gloss. In a previous era, America's most wealthy families, including the Carnegies, the Mellons, and the Rockefellers, gave vast sums of money to charity. Today's billionaires show no such... Ah, I cannot say the word philanthropy. Philanthropy? Is it philanthropy? Let's say it's philanthropy. I'm fairly sure it's philanthropist, so therefore it must be pronounced philanthropy, and I must be engaging in philanthropophobia by not being able to say the word philanthropy. Let's try that again. Today's billionaires show no such philanthropy. That still doesn't sound right, but still, we're going going to move on. We're going to move on. The president should summon America's billionaires to the White House and urge them to finance a bold, new national project retrofitting America's roads and highways with solar energy technology. This will guarantee the residential energy supply, help make our country independent from foreign sources of oil, and free us from the foreign wars that are necessary to secure the supply of that foreign oil. Andrew D. Bessiago for president, andy2016.com. Now, you might be going, Dr. Dentith, Dr. Dentith, why bring this up on a podcast about conspiracy theories? And that's a good point. This actually seems like a really good plan. Electric roading and electric cars seem like a really good band-aid to the climate crisis that we are suffering at this particular point in time. However, I do detect a secret plan behind Andy's plan. I mean, we're talking here about retrofitting America's roads and highways with solar energy technology. That sounds like heat rays. I think Andy Basiago is going to convert the entire American highway system into one giant heat ray weapon system to use against the alien invaders 
and the people from Mars that he is so concerned we already have contact with. So Andy, I would ask you, come clean. Is this really about renewable energy? Is this really about making highways better? Or is this actually part of a grandiose plan to turn America into one giant heat ray death machine to destroy Mars and to save us from invading aliens? The people ought to know, Andy. The people ought to know. Because you are going to be president. This has already been decided. So, to the main topic of today's episode, which now that I think about it, I realise I haven't actually mentioned in any of my earlier pieces. I'm going to assume Matthew did, though, because he's the conscientious type and and probably would have been on top of all that sort of thing. But just in case, um, we are talking about the downing of flight MH17. Um, You'll recall a couple of years ago when Malaysian Airlines had a particularly bad run of it, first losing flight MH370 completely, um, and then uh, having flight MH17 shot down over Ukraine. Now, unlike in the case of MH370, we we know precisely what happened to MH17. It was hit with a missile, it crashed and killed everyone on board. Um, But in this case, there has still been a fair amount of controversy and conspiracy theorising about exactly who fired the missile and where it came from and and why the plane was shot down in the first place. so as as you are no doubt aware, Russia um, is, an, is, is in dispute, shall we say, with Ukraine about whether or not Ukraine is part of Russia or not, as they would have it. Um, there's been a fair amount of fighting going on. Um, and so with, with, with a fair amount of, of sort of troops and army and indeed missile launches in the area, it was not immediately clear whether the plane had been downed by Russian or Ukrainian forces. Uh, obviously, neither would want to take responsibility for downing a civilian um, aeroplane. Um, and, and it's never been quite certain or at least initially it was not quite certain um, who had fired it and why. Whether, obviously, to begin with, there were any number of false flag theories that perhaps, you know, um, it had been downed by the Russians but had, but, but who were wanting to make it look like the Ukrainians had done it um, to, to get sort of, you know, the world on Russia's side and so on. Um, the reason why we're talking about it today, though, is that um, a recent... Uh, investigation has concluded that MH17 was shot down by a Russian missile. Um, the report details how sort of basically where this missile came from. They they claim to have records of where the specific missile was, where it was ta- where it came from, where it was moved to, um, and and the, uh, having combed through millions of pages of social media posts, um, eyewitness accounts, physical evidence, um, and I see more than 150,000 secretly taped phone calls. Um, they've come up with this conclusion. They, they claim to have uh, phone calls of people um, basically re- requesting this missile be brought to this area and so on and so forth. Um so their, their conclusion is fairly cut and dried. It was Russia. They did it uh, with a Russian missile. Um, there has been some criticism of it, though. I'll, I'll leave it to Matthew to provide the details, but essentially some people have claimed that they've cherry-picked the evidence a bit and, and that there is other, uh, you know, other, other, say, taped phone calls that show um, Ukrainian troops requesting a missile of that type and so on and so forth. Um, so there's, there's still a fair amount of controversy um, around it. Um, it's a it's an interesting affair. It's it's you know obviously very very politically um, sensitive. 
uh, very controversial and and not a, a little bit conspiratorial. But I think perhaps the best person to talk to you about this would be a certain Dr. Matthew R. X. Dentith. So, Mr. Dentith, Dr. Dentith, please take it away. So, yes, there's been another report on the downing of MH17. This is, I think, the third one thus far. The first one was an American intelligence report prepared by the American military using sensor data and the like, and it quite squarely pointed the finger at, at Russian-backed insurgents in the eastern Ukraine. Uh, then there was a Dutch safety board report which came out in 2013, and it claimed that MH17 was brought down by a surface-to-air missile located somewhere in the eastern Ukraine controlled by Russian sympathising rebels at the time. And now there's this new 2016 Dutch-led report, once again, uh, the JIT, the Joint Investigative Team Report. Uh, it's called a Joint Investigative Team because it included members from Belgium, the Ukraine, Australia and Malaysia. And its investigation concluded that MH17 was indeed shot down by a Russian-supplied missile, a book or maybe it's a BUK, don't really know enough about surface-to-air missile technology, know whether we call them books or BUKs, I've seen it both spelt with upper and lowercase letters, so who knows. Uh, so, Russian missile, basically, fired from a Russian-provided BUK missile system, fired by Russian sympathising and Russian-supplied rebels in the eastern Ukraine. So we've got three reports now, and all three reports indicate that MH17 was brought down by basically either the Russians, because they supplied the surface-to-air missile and maybe provided the information which led to the downing of MH17, or at least by people in the eastern Ukraine who are sympathetic to and supplied by the Russians. So ipso facto, people are saying, is that the right way to use ipso facto? Now I'm using, I'm going, ooh, am I using ipso facto correctly? Or is it one of those academic words which I think I know what it means because everyone else thinks they know what it means and actually it isn't? You don't need to worry about whether I'm using ipso facto correctly. What you need to worry about is the fact that it appears to be the case that Russia was largely, I'm using this in a kind of vague sense, behind the downing of MH17. Now this new report comes to uh, this particular conclusion Basically, by trawling through millions of pages of social media posts, hundreds of eyewitness accounts, and basically lots of containers of actual physical evidence, which includes missile systems, uh, reports, paperwork, and the like, and also 150,000 secretly taped phone calls captured in the regions in the days before and after the disaster. 150,000 secretly taped phone calls. That's a lot of phone calls. Imagine being members of the investigative team who have to sit down and act, well, maybe they stood up, maybe they've got those nice standing desks, but they have to spend a large amount of time listening to phone calls, presumably in some cases, in languages they don't understand, or reading transcriptions, doing translations, all to try to get to the bottom of who had the surface air missiles at the time, who were firing them on the day, and do we have any talk of potential targets and the like. So this report's fairly interesting uh, because it uses an awful lot of data, a lot of which is now 
in the public domain. So you can actually go and look at the report, look at the annexes of the report, and actually look at the bits of information the report relies upon to come to this particular conclusion. So we've got three reports now, and all three report reports agree as to the basic location of where the missile attack started, the eastern Ukraine, and all three seem to point the finger that it were, were, it were, that's terrible grammar, that it was Russian-supplied rebels who fired the missile at MH17. Now, of course, the Kremlin disagrees. They claim this is a hatchet job against the Russians at this particular point in time. And there are people out there who are pouring scorn or criticism on the report, namely one Robert Parry, uh, he who uncovered or covered the Iran-Contra affair. And he's gone through the report and pointed out that there are a few inconsistencies. Uh, so snippets of discussions where rebels make claims inconsistent with the general thesis of the JIT report, and things like that. So taped phone conversations which indicate the rebels don't know what's going on, taped phone conversations where people describe particular convoys in different ways depending on who's holding the conversation at a particular point in time. And he's claiming this indicates there's wriggle room here to indicate the JIT report is in fact not the full story of what went on at the time. Now, I'm not convinced by Perry's argument in this particular case, in part because what he's pointing out is that there are little bits of information in what we might now call the official theory of the downing of MH17, which indicates that maybe the JIT report isn't the most fulsome story of what went on. But I would argue what Robert Perry has found here are bits of data which are errant to the main thesis, but not errant in such a way they show that the main thesis is so inconsistent that the main thesis must in fact be wrong. So when you've got a general explanation of a complex phenomena, which let's face it, the downing of a aircraft by either Russian insurgents or Ukrainian patriot forces, it's going to be a rather complex issue to unpack because no one's willing to admit on either side exactly who did it. So you're trying to get to a general thesis based on a whole bunch of rather disparate data. You are going to then find that there are bits of data in the evidential record which don't quite fit with the general thesis. And that's in part because you're dealing with human beings and human beings, as we've seen in this particular recording, sometimes make mistakes in the things they say, aha, there we go, I can now justify that earlier prevarication about ipso facto and such like as being a kind of illustrative example to make sense of what I'm talking about here. So when people are having conversations, their language is often imprecise. And that's fine in most part, because the person you're having the conversation with by and large knows what you're talking about. But if people then go and look at that conversation several years later, trying to pick up exactly what went on, those inconsistencies or those ambiguities in human language end up being a fair whack of trouble for trying to work out, now, I wasn't party to this conversation, but I'm trying to work out what did they mean at the time. And he said something really weird, and she said something really weird, which indicates another rival hypothesis that could come into play here. Now, that seems fair when you're looking at the evidence after the fact, 
But during the conversation, presumably those people, even if they were using language imprecisely, knew what they were talking about because they were talking in the context of a conversation where they knew what their aims and desires were. So Perry's issues with the evidence here aren't necessarily issues which show that the general thesis is inconsistent. What it shows is that there are bits of evidence in the record which are inconsistent for a variety of different reasons, some of which are going to be impreciseness of language, some of it's going to be confusions amongst the people involved in the particular event, so not everyone knew what was going on. In fact, what's interesting about looking at a lot of the data that the JIT put forward is that it's quite clear there's a lot of confusion amongst the insurgents as they're trying to work out exactly what's going on, what the chain of command looks like, and where information is coming from and who gets priority when judging some bits of evidence or information to be good or the most recent, etc., etc. So no, I'm not convinced that Perry's argument about the JIT hypothesis being inconsistent actually hold all that much water. We should expect there to be errant data in the official theory, as I'm saying here in air quotes, official theory, because once again, this official theory is a kind of conspiracy theory. We'll get onto that in just a second. Uh, it's just to be expected that there are going to be inconsistencies. The question is, are the inconsistencies so big that it then casts doubt upon the particular hypothesis? And I would argue that Perry has shown some interesting inconsistencies, but those inconsistencies aren't so big that they actually cast doubt upon the general thesis itself. Where Perry actually does have a point, though, is that the JIT investigation is heavily tied into the Ukrainian government. So the investigators were based in the Ukraine. They worked with Ukrainian investigators. Part of the investigative team was, in fact, Ukrainian. And they agreed to release or redact data in accordance with Ukrainian law and wishes. Now, as my friend and colleague Lee Basham would point out, this leads to questions as to whether the report would ever release any information which would be toxic to the host regime. So there is a question here as to whether we can trust the report for the sheer fact it's heavily in bed with the Ukraine. And of course, we've got a classic he said, he said, or she said, she said situation. The Russians claim it was the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians claim it was the Russians. This report's coming out of the Ukraine. It's kind of expected that the report will point the finger not at the host government, but at the enemy across the border. Now, I have two responses to this, and neither of these are cutting in such a way that they get us away from the toxicity issue of would the report say something bad about the Ukraine. But they are things that point towards the fact that maybe Russia might be protesting just a little too much. Uh, so the first issue is, of course, Russia doesn't actually need people to be saying bad things about it for us to be suspicious of what Russia is up to. Uh, Russia is quite happy to engage in extrajudicial murder using complex chem chemicals or radioactive isotopes. Russia is quite content to engage in 
fairly terrible activities, both home and abroad, with respect to its own citizens. Russia is quite willing to back the hacking of Democratic candidates who are standing for president in the United States elections at, in November of this year. So Russia is quite willing to do things and then deny that they've actually done it, even though the evidence is clear they actually did. So in that particular respect, Russia might be protesting a little bit too much to go, oh, this is just a hatchet job against us. Actually, we're quite used to Russia doing things just like this and covering the information up, and so it's reasonable to suspect that maybe Russia did do it. The other thing, of course, is that even if we're worried about the Ukrainian influence on the JIT report, a lot of the information the report relies upon is now in the public domain. Not all of it is. Some of it was considered to be sensitive information. The Ukrainians did not want revealed about troop movement and the like, given there is still an ongoing conflict there. But a lot of the data is available for people to look at. And thus it's possible for people to go away and test parts of the general thesis and see whether they hold water. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not a conspiracy at the heart of the JIT report or that the Ukrainians have done things to mislead the investigators in the joint investigative team, but it does go some way to mollifying critics of the report by going, well, look, go and look at the data yourself like Robert Perry has and see if you can find things that show it up. So, yeah. By and large, it does seem that there's been a concerted conspiracy by someone, either the Ukrainians or the Russians, to hide exactly what happened to MH17. It seems reasonable to suspect that maybe Russia was behind it, because no matter what you think about where the missile was fired or who fired it, Russia is the origin point for the book missile system in the first place. So that's Kind of questionable as to why the Ukrainians would have a Russian missile system, although some people are saying that's because Russia and Ukraine are side by side. Of course, they've got Russian military tech. Before the conflict, they were kind of in a true state and trading weapons all the time. But there is definitely a conspiracy here. The question is, whose conspiracy? And exactly what's going on to cover this information up? So yes, those are some of my thoughts about the downing of MH17. Back to you, Joshua. So there you go, an interesting issue, a, a contentious and controversial one, and one that we almost certainly have not heard the end of. Um, but that's the end of it for now, uh, or at least for this episode. Um, so, goodbye from me, Matthew. How about you give us your final thoughts and then send us out on a song? Well, Joshua, this week's thought a new segment we'll probably never do again, is why can you get Monteith Summer Ale in Bucharest supermarkets? Because you can. I don't know why, but you can. Anyway, this week's song is Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. I thought it'd be nice to have a bit of a Russian theme. And it is, of course, produced by the wonderful Kevin MacLeod. So play on, Kevin, and show us how that sugar plum fairy dances. Tchaikovsky. You've been listening to a podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentith. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com. <laughs>